Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. The time in Kiev is 7.11 a.m., the morning of the 7th of April, 2022, day 43 of the invasion. The north and central part of Ukraine is liberated, including Kiev, Sumy, Chernev, um, and basically Kharkiv. Uh, the Ukrainians are moving east, and the Russians are trying to keep up. of Reconsider, part of the Agora Podcast Network, where we don't do the thinking for you. I'm Eric, your host, uh, and today, episode five of our special series on Ukraine, All Wild on the Eastern Front. This is a totally different war from what it was uh, even a few days ago, frankly, um, and all things look rosy for Ukraine right now in the north and central parts of the country. But things are about to get very complicated out east. Uh, and we are back to a war that may become very mobile and may become very uncertain. So let's dive in. Uh, so Russia has left the Chernev and Kiev oblasts entirely. Um, again, Sumy, Chernev, Kiev are all liberated. Um, right now, the Ukrainian National Guard is actually going to kind of reoccupy and deal with that territory while the professional army moves east. Um, worth recalling, the National Guard of Ukraine has about uh, 60,000 troops. The reservists make up about 900,000, and they're kind of everywhere right now. And the army itself uh, was 170,000 by the time the war began. Um, and isn't a whole lot smaller right now. So uh, you've got this tooth of about, you know, 160,000 professional troops trying to move out east uh, and make hell happen there while the reservists and National Guard's people have the opportunity to go uh, retake and, and, you know, guard the north because uh, Russia could try to reinvade. Um, you at least have to be ready for that possibility. But let's take a marvel to a uh, moment to marvel at the truly heroic efforts in Chernev, Sumy, and Kharkiv um, to hold out and bog down Russian forces uh, and chew up Russian forces for 40 days, denying them the ability to actually make the northern front work. Um, truly incredible stuff, uh, and is a big part of why Kiev will survive this war. 
um, the Ukrainian government will survive this war and the nation of Ukraine will be a thing uh, when this war ends. This is going to go down in the history books um, as a, uh, again, truly astounding picture of human courage. The focus right now, though, is on the Donbass, the east. Um, and so Russia has given up on the idea that it's going to topple the government in Ukraine. Um, and probably at this point, Putin just needs uh, a way to say that he won. And he's probably very much hoping to be able to say that he won by May 9th. What's interesting about that, uh, the reason for that is that it is Victory Day in Russia. Um, and Victory Day is the day of the German surrender. Um, and so they they want some nice news for their parade. It is likely that these political motivations um, are going to drive a lot of miscalculation by Russia. Russia's also in a rush for a few other reasons, one of them uh, economic sanctions, which we'll talk about in a bit. But it means that things are going to move fast. The Russians are going to try to move fast, and the Ukrainians uh, have the opportunity to try to take advantage of that. Um, the Russian army may be under significant political pressure, um, to move quickly when it's been shown that it cannot move quickly. Um, the Russian army is pretty good at throwing, uh, has a lot of artillery and is pretty good at throwing artillery shells at problems. Um, not really solving a lot of problems with those artillery shells, but certainly killing a lot of people. Um, uh, but it has not shown an ability to win maneuver warfare. Um, and so, if there is pressure to move quickly to take the Donbass, uh, it'll either work out pretty well for them or more likely and terribly. Um, but the focus there's uh, the focus is there now, and what is likely is that the Russians hope to take sort of all the Donbass and uh, and a bunch of territory in the south to connect a land bridge to Crimea, um, hold that, uh, declare victory, and then uh, you know, and then just kind of move on. Um, they still have not taken Mariupol, which is the city that has been under brutal siege for uh, uh, well over a month, um, humanitarian catastrophe, and uh, but it still holds out. Um, what is likely is Ukraine is trying to race to rescue it, but uh, it looks like it's going to be pretty tough. Although, who knows? There's a lot of fog of war, and we are intentionally not learning a lot about the disposition of Ukrainian troops or what they're up to in order to protect them. Um, so uh, open source intelligence is not publishing this stuff. So it could be that the Ukrainians are about to go clobber the Russians down in the south. I just don't know. Um, the Ukrainians are moving on Kherson, which is along the river uh, between sort of that Mariupol area and Odessa along the south. Um, and if they can take that river, they'll be able to get the battle lines to at least settle there, um, if not be able to move on Mariupol. Um but the Russians may be trying to reposition troops out of the south because those southern troops have been a little bit more successful. Um, don't know if the Russians are going to try to position, reposition some of those in the east to try to encircle uh, Ukrainian troops that are holding the Donbass. And that's uh, really what's going on right now is um, the Ukrainian troops have been able to hold out in the Donbass uh, due in large part to their defensive fortifications that they built over the past six years. Um, so after the more mobile parts of the fighting in the Donbass, they've built uh, a triple trench line um, with a lot of other defensive fortifications that allowed them to hold off a whole lot of Russian advances there. So that line is hard to break, but what if you go around it? 
And right now, the Russians have the opportunity to go around it if they can advance. So they can try to pinch in um, and encircle that, that group and then be able to destroy it from behind. The Ukrainians are racing east in order to try to prevent that. And it actually seems pretty likely that the Ukrainians are going to do pretty well in that. The reason is the Ukrainians can get out to the east there much faster than the Russians can reposition their troops to the east. The Russian troops are beat up. They have to go all the way around. They have to go like back into Russia, get resupplied, refueled, um, and largely rebuilt, and, um, and then come back in. But the Russians can also, uh, and we'll talk about this in a sec, but the Russians have the ability to, um, in that area, deploy a ton of air power um, because it's very close to Russian territory, uh, and be able to fire a lot of artillery from behind friendly lines. Um, so the Russians can make it tough for a big mobile group uh, to be able to move and reposition if you're Ukraine. But it's likely that the Ukrainians will be able to beat the Russians out east, um, which may mean this whole thing is tilting at windmills and that a whole lot of people are going to die for no particularly good reason. But um, Russia's uh, you know, big advantage in the east the reason this isn't just totally crazy um is that they are close to home and they've struggled if to large extent because one um troops were like didn't even know they were being told to go to kiev they didn't really want to go they didn't want to blow up kiev because again kiev is like the the heartland of of russia so they don't want to like blow up it'd be like asking americans to blow up dc or new york um kind of hard to do um and so they didn't. They didn't want to go there. They didn't see. They didn't understand why. Uh, they didn't understand their mission. Whereas uh, the Donbass, they've been propagandized for a long time that holding the Donbass uh, is really important. That the Ukrainians have been committing genocide there. Um, the Donbass has generally been friendly um, and pro-Russia. And so the idea of trying to take that um, makes a little bit more sense. Russian morale is probably not high, but but most importantly, they're close to home. They have the ability to not have long supply lines. They have the ability to, again, operate largely from friendly territory and make small moves out rather than try to cut deep into enemy territory with no support. They're going to get more air support. They're going to be able to concentrate their forces. They're going to be able to get more artillery. But Russia has lost... Uh, effectively lost, and I literally the word effectively meant literally here, um, has lost has effectively lost 50 of its battalion tactical groups, or BTGs, out of the original 130 that they sent in. This doesn't mean that they're totally destroyed, but they're not combat operable right now. So uh, they're, they're quite beat up, um, beat up, blown up. And each BTG consisted of a pretty fixed number of tanks, armored vehicles, um, support vehicles, fuel trucks, etc., um, very few fuel trucks, interestingly, um, which was part of the reason they would get bogged down so easily. Um, a lot of those are back for refit, restructure, resupply. But a lot of that hardware has been abandoned because it was like stuck in the mud and such. Um, so it's not even clear like how much material they've like left behind and lost. Um, and those refits are just going to take time. Um, and I think for the what I'm hearing is for the next month or so, we can assume that they're kind of out of the game. Many of them are out of the game or most of those 50 are out of the game. So they're down to 80. Um, and so Ukraine's remaining military forces are unclear. But again, Ukraine can massively outnumber Russia. Ukraine can focus its, um, you know, again, its reservists and its 
National Guard on defense, and they can focus their professionals on offense in the South and in the East. Um, they have super high morale right now because they just won in the battle for Kiev. They just won the battle for Chernev and Sumy. Um, and again, they can have those less professionalized, less experienced troops holding on to those territories and defending. Um, and they can f- they can focus these very high morale, um, very angry troops uh, on the east. Um, I actually just listened, finally listened to Dan Carlin's um, episode from Common Sense, uh, in which he talks he talks from day five of the invasion. The you know one thing he says is that Russian troops have demonstrated repeatedly, and I think we we don't appreciate this, have demonstrated repeatedly that, that if they're just on the offensive, if they're invading, they're a little bit lackluster. Um, they kind of lack initiative and morale and, and speed and things tend not to go well. The, uh, the Russians have traditionally, and this has happened for a long time, this isn't just recent, the Russians have traditionally been very, very effective when on defense. If you invade Russia and they're defending the motherland, they're going to be really, really, really mad. Um, but if they're just attacking another country, they're not going to be so mad, and they're not going to fight the way that they would. Um, Russian morale is going to stay low. The reason that they've won in the past is they've had just such incredible overwhelming force and numbers um, that they could just kind of roll in and roll over any resistance. Right now, um, it seems that if the Russians face, again, uh, if they if they face head-to-head, concentrated resistance, they're in a lot of trouble. Um, and this presents a huge opportunity for Ukraine for a number of reasons. Um, one of them is that, you know, as much as the Russians can throw artillery and missiles at the problem from their planes, there's only really so much that does. At the end of the day, if you want to take territory, you have to send people in. And the Ukrainians, again, they've been really, really good at this mobile defense kind of thing where they can stay out of the line of fire. Um, they can put missiles in the air to uh, to harass any jets coming in. So... Um, there is not suppression of enemy air defense, far from it. And so if those planes want to, if those Russian planes want to actually support advances rather than simply fire missiles at static targets, they have to get closer and then they're vulnerable. And again, it seems like the Russian Air Force has just been simply unwilling to repeatedly expose itself to that kind of danger. And so um, this kind of like low Russian morale and its low ability to really support its offensives is probably going to mean repeated problems when, again, it's up against really stiff defense. And and it turns out putting 150,000 or even 100,000 angry Ukrainian professional troops plus some unknown number, but perhaps, you know, 100,000 reservists um, in this area to defend it, it's there's just a lot of people per kind of mile of front. Um, and so they be, they become, you know, it, it, again, it requires a meaningful push and winning head-to-head combat um, against Ukrainian troops in order to achieve victory. Um, and the Ukrainian troops have shown that they can take on uh, Russian, you know, tank divisions, even without a whole bunch of tanks of their own, which, again, the Ukrainians largely lack modern tanks um, that can take on the T-80s and T-90s. But Javelins can, and the Americans are sending even more um, for, this part of the, for this part of the invasion. Um, Czechia has sent some tanks, you know, the Czech Republic has sent some tanks to Ukraine. Ukraine. 
Um, and it looks like more countries in the East will do so. So Ukraine may at least have a bit of serious offensive capability. And the cool part for Ukraine is you only actually need to have a bit um, because what you could do is you can play defense most of the time and use your offensive capability selectively um, to counterattack. So they don't need tons of offensive capability. Their defensive capability has been shown to be very, very good. And as long as they can stay armed and equipped for that defense, their limited offense can be pointed in areas where the Russians are weak or they are made weak. Um, what is likely is that uh, the Ukrainians will try to take Kursan pretty quickly um, so that they can move more of that offensive capability to the east and get that disproportionate concentration that you'd want. This is something Napoleon was always very good at, was um, being able to use limited troops to defend uh, and then focus um, focus on offense. Um, and the Ukrainians can do that. So this is where the Ukrainians have a lot of hope, even though they're going to be a lot under a lot of fire. Um, they can play mobile defense and they can play selective offense. So um, ultimately, Ukraine's play, the way, to, the way to take advantage of this is do something like the following. One, win the race to the east for the counteroffensive. So win the logistics game um, and get a lot of troops and equipment and fuel and food out to the east and keep those paths open. Keep, you know, use your reservists to defend those areas um, from any sabotage. Two, push on the flank at Kharkiv. Um, and pressure the northern part of Russians' eastern forces there. So don't let them operate at will. You want to you want to move from Kharkiv back out and push these guys where they're sitting pretty, um, rather than just let those Russian forces in the north kind of operate at will. Um, and you're just playing defense the whole time. So that's one of the places to play selective offense. Um, take Kursan and secure the south. That's three, so that you can move more of those offensive forces to the east. Um, one of the things you can do now that the Russians have abandoned uh, the north is you can set up a bunch of artillery along the Russian border and light it up. It turns out throwing shells are cheap. Um, and, you know, what you want to do is, like, not give the Russians the ability to refit and move around in peace. Make life hell on the Russian side. Maybe even blow up a bunch of civilian stuff on the Russian side. Not to be jerks, but to get some of that stuff on TV. To make the Russians go, like, wait a minute, I thought we were winning. What is this, right? And uh, hurt Russian morale more. Now, it, that may backfire, so I don't know about attacking civilians. Uh, I'm not an expert on this. Um, it turns out attack, maybe it's a, just a terrible idea. Attacking civilians is often a bad idea. But you can light up um, Russian uh, troops that are trying to reorganize there. Make life hell for them. Um, and keep those 50 damaged battalions out of the fight. Plus... Uh, or BTGs out of the fight. Plus, whatever proportion of BTGs were operable that retreated, because uh, it's it's a huge number of the remaining 80 ones, were, uh, 80 of them were in the north. Um, you know, keep the pressure on them, even though they're on the other side of the border, uh, and keep them from being able to enter the fight anytime soon. If you can do that, you continue to have a higher advantage in the east. So this kind of thing, like, what's interesting is when people talk about the theater warfare here, there's this kind of like assumption that there's this magic border and the defending country can only really operate on its own side, but that's just not true at all. Um, they can operate in Russian territory. They can make life very difficult, and there's no reason not to. Um, 
the Ukrainians can get reserve forces and, and like less experienced forces into the villages and towns armed with a bunch of javelins and switchblades in the east to ambush to be ambush points for any Russian advance. Um, so what they'll be able to do is just make like dot the entire area with these mobile defense units that they've been you know using to such effect. And if the Russians break through anywhere, they manage to extend themselves anywhere. Um, you can you can blow up those convoys the way that they've done otherwise. Um, and then you can six use the professional army to play maneuver warfare um, to expose Russian salients uh, that do advance, encircle them, and blow them up. Um, seven create like similar highway of death situations where the Russians are trying to advance repeatedly to grind down and demoralize Russian troops and literally just get so much stuff in the way um, that it's hard for the Russians to advance because the Ukrainians are operating with like significantly good American intelligence due to the Russians not even being able to um, keep their communications encrypted, but also just like American, you know, planes circling around Poland Um and so you can just, like, keep blowing up these guys every time they try to advance. Um, and this is going to demoralize Russian troops significantly. And morale has been the game changer here. And then finally, as you mentioned, as you're doing that, create counterattack opportunities against these Russian troops that are worn out from failed offensives. Um, and they're just going to break and run, right? This is one thing we've learned is that as the Russian troops get worn out, they're in enemy territory. They don't understand why they're there. Um, once they've been beat up pretty bad and like they've seen a bunch of their friends get bloodied and burned, um, you attack them, they're going to break. And so you can retake territory bit by bit at, uh, at your discretion. Um, and the Ukrainians really could do this. Um, the Ukrainians really can do this. And I honestly don't see a reason why they shouldn't be able to win the morale game. Um, the Russians can't outnumber them at this point. The Russians uh, can only really do well if they're, I think, um, if the Russians really, really commit their air force to really trying to reestablish suppression of enemy air defenses, at least in the east, um, and take advantage of the fact that they just have so much more air power, um, and then try to create, um, you know, try to create uh, air support for the ground units, then the Russians have a shot. So it kind of depends if the Russians are able and willing to commit their air force to doing this, um, knowing that their air force is going to take some hell. But flyboys tend to not like getting shot at. So we'll see. So the outcome is uncertain, but I do think the Ukrainians have a meaningful advantage. Um, and it's worth noting that like Russia isn't going to become more competent as time goes on. The political pressure on the remaining generals is higher. Generals have died. Like, a number of generals have died. Um, there's, like, things are, I'm sure they're frustrated and howling at each other. Um, uh, scuttlebutt is starting to spread. I mean, these troops that come back from Kiev aren't going to come back, like, really roaring and ready to go. Um, the Russians are likely to become less competent. And the Ukrainians are likely to become, you know, are likely to remain very high in morale. So... I honestly don't see this like push in the Donbass going well for the Russians at all. I don't see the kind of like running over that you had early on where like, you know, the Ukrainians thought the outcome was uncertain. The Ukrainians think they're going to win and the Russians think they're going to lose. And that makes a huge difference. It makes maybe all the difference. So Ukraine, Ukraine, all they really need to do is like, they, all they really have to do is hold, but they want to do more than hold. 
because wherever the battle lines end at the armistice, you know, the Russians going to be busy, one, slaughtering civilians, uh, like absolute monsters, uh, but two, you know, installing Russian puppets, giving out Russian passports, um, and ethnically cleansing those areas to become Russian. So the Ukrainians, after seeing Bukha, are very, very motivated to take back territory, not just hold it. Um, but time is on Ukraine's side in a lot of ways. Um, and it may even be the case that, you know, if the Ukrainians are advancing, Russia may call for a ceasefire, but the Ukrainians may not want one. Who knows? Um, it is worth noting one of the complications here is if the Ukrainians get too close to the Russian border, um, Russia may decide to go nuclear because they'll be afraid that they are their existence is at risk or something like that. Um, and unfortunately, that's something that has to be paid attention to. But um, so you might think that Putin holds a lot of the cards in negotiations with Ukraine because he holds territory and he can kill people. But of course, Ukraine has the Western sanctions, which they're trying to get cranked up. And with coordination, they can demand certain conditions in exchange for various sanctions getting lifted. It is the case that the sanctions are so bad that the Russians probably can't put up with them indefinitely. So the Russians are not just negotiating with Ukraine. They are negotiating with the West as a whole. And that's going to give Ukraine a big advantage as this starts to like calcify. That's going to be what happens at some point. We're going to see a calcification of the war of the battle line somewhere. And as this drags out, the Ukrainians will still have negotiating power because it's one thing for the Russians to not be expending blood um, in Ukraine, right? So even if the fighting switches off, um, but the, the Russians are in a lot of trouble long-term economically um, or medium-term economically, and the West is going to be able to negotiate with them about what Russia needs to do to get some of these lifted. Now, the thing is, as Dan Carlin mentioned, it may be the case that what Putin wants and what Russia wants are potentially two different things. This is hard for Russia because Putin is at the top of a pyramid. He is an autocrat. Um, and frankly, unless someone offs Putin, um, you know, Putin is not going to want is not going to be all that concerned about the economic distress that his people feel. The only reason he would feel pressure from that is that someone may get fed up with it and axe him. Um, and I mean literally. So um, so the, the economic sanctions do present some opportunity for the West to support Ukraine in its negotiations. Um, but this only really matters if there's enough pressure on Putin to try to lift the pain. Um, and so let's talk about those sanctions for a minute because they're going to be really important for this phase of the war. Are the sanctions working? Kinda. Maybe, maybe not. It depends what working means. Um, what, the, what the West is trying to do with these sanctions is, one, send the ruble into a nosedive, two, cause Russia to default, um, and three, make the, like, make the economic pain so acute um, and so brutal for a war of choice um, that someone finally decides to like have a coup or an assassination or some sort of intervention with Putin and sit him down and say, hey, buddy, we're your friends and we want you to know that you're addicted to war uh, and it's killing your family. So um, so part of, you know, part of what's going on here is the, you know, we know the ruble went from about 77 to the dollar down to about 140 to the dollar. So it lost almost half its value. But it's bounced back to 82. 
And so it looks in some ways like the sanctions aren't working. But what's going on here? Well, um, it is the case that Russia's lack of access to foreign reserves uh, is troubling it. So they recently repaid bonds that were due in dollars and euros in rubles to hold out their foreign reserves that they do have, which, uh, they're sh- which it's a sign that they're short of foreign reserves and trying to hoard them. Um, this could be technically counted as a default, apparently, because the bond was ordered to be or was like scheduled or, or contracted to be repaid in dollars or euros. And so um, it could be, you know, credit agency could declare that, you know, they're in default of this because they paid it with the wrong stuff. Now, they happen to have paid it with rubles to that amount. So who knows uh, how that's going to go and what the political pressure on the rating agencies are. Um, most of them have, have not are not giving Russia a rating because they just kind of want to stay out of it. Um but Russia is low on lowish on access to foreign reserves because most of these foreign reserves are in foreign banks that have frozen those reserves. Um, the the sanctions against these banks or against these reserves, interestingly, have a carve out in which Russia can pay some foreign debts in dollars and euros that it holds overseas. I have no idea why these carve outs exist. Um, maybe it's to, it might be to like prevent the banks that hold these bonds, um, or that, that issued these bonds, uh, prevent the banks from running into trouble, um, and like not punish them. I don't know. Like it just seems kind of weak sauce, but that carve out is closing at the end of April. So at the end of April, Russia won't be able to access, won't be able to get, use those foreign reserves that it has overseas to pay its bonds. And there are bonds that are due this year that can only be repaid in dollars and euros. Um, And so that might drive a default. But why hasn't it worked yet? Well, Russia has been clever about popping up the ruble. One of the things that it did was it created a 20% interest rate, which means that saving in rubles makes sense because you're collecting a lot of interest. Who wouldn't want 20% year-over-year growth? Um, and, uh, uh, And they've made it like a pain in the butt to sell your rubles, they made it a pain in the butt, to, or like you know, illegal to get foreign currency in certain ways. Um, companies who are exporting stuff have to, um, they have to uh, uh, turn a lot of what they get into rubles. I think eighty percent of it. Um, all this stuff is painful for people, but it keeps the euro or the ruble from collapsing um, because people aren't able to sell them um, as much, and so. Uh, and so it keeps the the floor from sort of bottoming out. Um, the other thing that's going on is uh, they are, you know, they're still getting a lot of dollars and euros from gas and oil. So they're able to use those to that to buy rubles and like keep the price high. Um, and so there's a lot of magic going on. And but but that gas and oil has definitely kept Russia from becoming insolvent. And so just because it needs a lot of euros and dollars flowing in. Can Europe unite to block Russian oil and gas? Uh, that would hurt a ton, like a ton. And so it's not clear if that can happen. In particular, the Germans seem unwilling to do it. And the fact that prices are so high for gas and oil is really helping Russia because they're getting more dollars and euros in than they would have. Um, now, you, can you do things to try to help the price a little bit? Yeah. Will OPEC increase output? Probably not. Um, 
both because they want to play nice with Russia and, hey, they like money. Um, and so you have the situation where Russia is getting a lifeline from gas and oil. Long term, that's not going to work. 30 years from now, um, that won't work anymore, right? They've kind of sealed this themselves strategically into a corner. But for the short term game, we're talking about Ukraine's ability to make, you know, to, to win the war because Russia is hurting so much economically. Um, so the thing is, uh, the thing is like, this is not going in Russia's direction. They're holding on, they're holding it together right now, but like you can't keep 20% interest rates going on forever. Um, and you, you know, it is the case that Russia is running out of these foreign reserves and is, uh, at risk of defaulting. And if they default, um, all sorts of bad things happen. They like lose access to all sorts of more stuff. Um, and the ruble could at that point plummet. Um, so, uh, you know, and also medium term, like gas and oil prices will decrease, especially if flow isn't going down. Um, you know, right now they're high speculatively, um, but they could go back down and the Russians will get squeezed. So, um, what's likely to happen is that Russia will run out of foreign reserves and in, um, in, you know, and by May they'll have to, uh, they won't be able to access those foreign, those overseas foreign reserves anymore. Um, and they'll need to pay back a bond and won't be able to, they'll default and they'll likely default before Western countries get totally fed up and force sanctions, you know, and their populations force sanctions to be lifted in order to save their own pain, right? Like keep fuel prices down. So, um, uh, you know, there are protests in like Peru, but most best Western major leaders, um, most major leaders in the West don't have much of an election coming anytime soon. And the Europeans are so upset with Russia that those leaders would likely survive those elections anyway. And therefore, don't expect the sanctions to lift anytime soon. In fact, the atrocities like Buka are like, they're just the worst thing for Russia to have done to themselves because it, whatever like loosening of spine the West may have had, um, the atrocities have made uh, Russia so, so reviled um, that the pressure will crank up rather than crank down. Um, even India and China are starting to distance themselves a little bit from Russia um, because they're honestly butchers. So how will this end, right? Um, it's likely there's going to be a ceasefire at some point. Um, Putin will likely get enough pressure uh, from his own people to declare a ceasefire and declare victory somewhere. Um, especially once the battle lines are really sticky and Russia is just kind of like draining money um, and at risk of default. So it might happen in May. Now, a lot of U.S. Um, uh, US intelligence suggests, or NATO intelligence as well, suggests this might go on for years. I'd personally be surprised. Um, I just don't see any reason that it would go on for years, especially if the battle lines do get really sticky. Um, time is not on Russia's side. So... Um, whenever the ceasefire is reached, um, you know, Ukraine will get to take a breather and they'll get tons of support from the West to rebuild. Um, but Ukraine isn't, you know, even if the Russians offered a ceasefire today, it might be a devil's bargain. Uh, because again, so much territory is under Russian control. They may, they definitely want to counterattack and take back territory before it's all over. Um, so it's likely that a ceasefire is only possible once things get really sticky. So will it end soon? Again, it's hard to say. Russia really wants to declare victory by May 9th. Um, and maybe May might be when uh, Russia is at risk of default. So they may 
Um, they may end the war soon, but what they're likely going to do is go to the West and say, we'll end the war if you lift sanctions. And so a negotiation has to go go on with the West before the sanction, you know, before the war actually ends. Um, and Russia gets to say, what, do you want the Ukrainians to keep suffering? But stay tuned for uh, early May, um, where things look like they could get ugly economically, where the political pressure gets really high. Um, Russia might default, the economy might go for a tailspin. Um, but, you know, ultimately, pending, uh, you know, pending someone killing Pending someone killing Putin, um, I don't see uh, this ending immediately. And um, I see it, you know, even if if Ukraine wins the sort of ground war for much of the East, they're not going to be able to take back old Donbass and, um, you know, the, the 2014 Donbass and Crimea. Um, and they won't try to. They're just going to try to get back to those borders and hold out. And then it's going to be like just a long, terrible negotiation um, with a lot of agony for everyone involved. So that's how I see the Eastern Front playing out. Um, and with that, I'm going to get back to doing some research to get you guys some more uh, good content, in particular regarding misinformation on the Russian side. Uh, with, uh, so I'm going to split. Don't let the pundits do the thinking for you. This is Eric signing off. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade.